My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Alex Kaznabish and Max Haven. When most of us hear the word imagination, what comes to mind is often a very individual trait or activity that's often understood as fantastical, ephemeral, frivolous, or disconnected from the concerns of the so-called real world. There's increasing recognition, however, that for all the romantic ink that has been spilled regarding imagination as individual passion, it really makes more sense to recognize that imagination is not only always social, something that is sparked between and among us, but that it also has a great deal to do with social movements. After all, how could we ever act to create change without being able to imagine in collective ways a world that is in some sense otherwise than the one we now inhabit? Kaznabish and Haven are activists and academics based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. For the last several years, they've been working together on a project that seeks not only to study such radical manifestations of imagination, but also to leverage the resources that they have access to through their privileged location within the academy to support movements in the Halifax area. They talk with me about the radical imagination, about the challenges of relating to movements from within university contexts, and about their past, present, and future activities on the East Coast doing what they describe as convoking such radical imagination in the service of transformative social change. I spoke with them in person at the recent People's Social Forum in Ottawa, Ontario. My name is Max Haven. I am an assistant professor in the Division of Art History and Critical Studies at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax. And I'm Alex Kasnabish. I'm an associate professor in sociology and anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University. And together we are co-directors of the Radical Imagination Project. The Radical Imagination Project is our attempt to mobilize our location as university-based researchers to put those resources and that time and space to work with social movements in Halifax, to help them do things that movements are not already doing for themselves. Alex and I met when we were both in graduate school at McMaster. Alex was at the very end of his degree and I was at the very beginning of mine at the time. And we both had an interest in social movements and the relationship between social movements and academe. Both of us served as executives at different times, but in the same local of precarious academic workers at McMaster University, Canadian Union of Public Employees, Local 3906. And I guess we started talking after Alex moved to Halifax about the possibility of working together on some form of social movement research that would be about trying to do more than just study movements and write about them. There's a lot of social movement research in academe that's just basically about sort of reporting on what social movements do. There's a lot of research that purports to be in solidarity with movements, and we sort of wanted to question that and experiment with developing a different methodology. So we applied for a grant, we got it, it actually allowed me to move to Halifax, 
and we started on this research project. And the idea behind that research project was we'd both been very interested in this question of the radical imagination. I had come to it from a degree in cultural studies where I was trying to understand what the imagination is and how imaginary money gets created in the global economy, specifically finance capital. Alex had been interested in the radical imagination and had written about it in terms of the Zapatistas. And uh, just a quick interruption for the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with the term. The Zapatistas are a group of mostly Mayan people in southern Mexico who began an uprising in the mid-1990s against the Mexican state and against neoliberal capitalism that continues in various forms to today and that has been very inspiring to uh, a wide array of activists in many locations around the world and particularly the resonances of the Zapatistas or Zapatismo beyond Chiapas, Mexico, especially in North America. So we sort of brought this interest in the imagination together to try and figure out a project where we would see ourselves not simply as observing the imagination in action, but trying to, as we say, convoke it, try and call it into being as a collective practice. So why don't you talk a little bit about what imagination is, because I, I suspect that what that word means to mm-hmm. folks familiar with it in a lay sense might be different than how mm-hmm. you're using it. Yeah, for sure. Usually when we utter that word, especially for, you know, hardcore activists and organizers, it tends to evoke this sense of either individual distance reflection from the world or fantastical escapes from it but always sort of in an individualized way. This is sort of the romantic notion of the imagination being the product of the individual genius at work. And we really, as Max said, approach that concept both skeptically and critically, but also seeing it in the way that it had worked within the movements that we'd been a part of. Seeing it as a constitutive part of movement work, movement building, we didn't think that the imagination was actually anything that anybody has individually. It's actually something that comes into being when we engage each other collectively and dialogically. So in other words, the imagination doesn't really exist in people individually. It exists as it sparks between people, between groups, between collectives, as they encounter each other and work their way through the world. Imagination, on one level, of course, is the ability to imagine that which does not exist in front of you at any given moment, right? And so when you have a daydream or something, of course, that's the individual use of the imagination. You're projecting your consciousness into somewhere that isn't actually there right then. But we also began to work and in dialogue, obviously, with lots of other good folks inside and outside the academy who are thinking and writing about the imagination in this kind of radical, imminent sense that it's the spark of social movements. It's the thing that allows people to begin to envision a place in a space, a time beyond that which we exist in right now. So there to be movement, there has to be a sense that one could move beyond where one is at right now, that there could be something different, we could live otherwise. And so for us, the imagination, the concept of the imagination, the work of the imagination is very much tied to that ability to envision that which doesn't exist. But again, that is always for us a collective process. And so when Max and I came together in Halifax and wrote up this grant was just as that whole wave of financial crisis on a global scale was cresting. In the immediate aftermath of that, of course, there was this abundant questioning by activists that we knew and were in conversation with, but also just kind of generally at the time, but where where were the social movements, the mass movements, especially in the global north, that were contesting this kind of whole new regime of accumulation by dispossession that followed in the wake of that crisis? 
There was that kind of surety that once the crisis manifested, and there's been this long-standing hope, I think, among some people in the left, catastrophic thinkers, that crisis will be the thing that will catalyze movements. And yet here we were in this moment in 2007, 2008, where it was abundantly clear that the emperor hadn't any clothes on, and yet the best we could seemingly do in public discourse was this reinvocation of Keynesian economic theory, right? The state could be better, we could step in, we could bail people out, we'd make some work programs, whatever. And, you know, that was both perplexing and enraging. And we thought, okay, there's got to be something that engaged solidaristic research, mobilized from the totally unjustly privileged, but also interestingly and productively quasi-autonomous space of the academy that we can offer, or we can do with movements that they can't do for themselves. And in the context of Halifax, it became clear to us, reflecting on our own experience there, that due to the kinds of barriers that were preventing, to our minds, movements in the city from coalescing effectively and working together effectively in the aftermath of some fairly fractious events, that we could mobilize a space, create a process and a time that would allow movements, we hoped, to begin to have conversations and dialogues around these visions of possibility of the future, but also just in terms of the present, in terms of their current constellations, the way they were organizing, that would bring into sharper relief some of the possibilities, but also the contradictions and points of friction between movements that could be productive and allow them to move beyond stagnation into something else. You raised one of the kinds of objections that I'm sure you hear from activists, which is imagination mm -hmm. is individual. But I would expect that another kind of objection you get from some activist corners is, well, you know, what we really need to be concerned with are the, the, the material realities mm -hmm. here. And the imagination, that, that'll all follow along if we just focus mm -hmm. on what's material in a, in a very sort of stodgy mm -hmm shallow sense. <laughs> how do you address that? And how do you say, well, no, imagination does matter? Obviously, the things that make a huge difference in people's lives are material changes. But I guess there's a couple of answers to this. One of them is that the imagination is a material force in people's lives. How people think about their material circumstances is fundamentally what drives history and what drives social change. It's true that we could all live off a bare minimum to have our material needs met in terms of food and shelter. But that is not anything that anyone would settle for. By the same token, the systems of power that keep us in line, yes, they're material, but they're also highly spiritual, they're highly mental, they're highly imaginary. Capitalism is a material relationship between people, but it's held in place by imagined relationships most of the time. Obviously, when the going gets tough, capitalism, colonialism, whatever else can rely on police and repression. But for the vast majority of people, that's not an everyday reality. For many people it is, but for many people, especially those who are more privileged in the system, it's not. So imagination is clearly playing a role in how people imagine themselves, how they imagine their relationships, how they imagine who they should be in solidarity and who they should not be in solidarity with. And in fact, most of our struggles, if we're honest with ourselves, are about trying to transform people's imagination, even material struggles. Even struggles against poverty, for instance, are usually aimed at convincing many people who are living in poverty that there is an alternative. It's about convincing policymakers sometimes to imagine that things could be different, or the public to actually care about these issues. So in fact, even if we're dealing with very material issues, there's an imaginative dimension to it. Really thinking critically about it is key, because if we don't, then we risk accepting material solutions that don't actually challenge the deeper structures of power. So 
we can have a slight increase in the minimum wage, for instance, which makes a material difference to many people's lives and it's something we should have, but that's not why poverty exists. Or we can have a slightly different structure in terms of who has access to marriage, in terms of queer demands. But that's not the limit of queer politics. When we talk about the imagination, we can think much more broadly about the scope and aims of movements. Tell me about what you did. How did you intervene in the Halifax community? We chose intentionally to cite this project in Halifax for several reasons. The first reason is it's a place that we live and work. So it was a community to which we were both connected in intimate lived ways. Both of us have done research in the past that involves looking at sometimes more dramatic, more spectacular, more certainly more exotic examples of social movement success and failure. But this moment, it really seemed, too, that there was something deeply limiting and voyeuristic to looking around the world to the spectacular examples where movements were having success and not enough being done in the spaces and places where privileged eyes were often looking away from. The other thing that we wanted to do was there was this moment in Halifax in the mid-2000s, a major convergence-style protest, sort of in the spirit of the summit mobilizations of the alter-globalization movement that really deeply fractured relations of trust and solidarity in the city for a lot of reasons. So we entered into thinking about this project at a moment both of global crisis, but also of local cynicism and hopelessness, and also in a space that is generally understudied and under-theorized by people who do social movement stuff. Halifax is an important regional centre in Canada, but marginal to the work of the Canadian state, and certainly marginal to the networks of global capitalism, but not entirely outside of it by any means. It's also overridden by histories of racism, colonial displacement, ongoing acts of violence against vulnerable people, all these sorts of things. So we really considered this intervention to be something that we could, in a spirit of solidarity again, engage with, with movements as they were doing their work of trying to rebuild themselves on the ground. So our intention was not to simply take a snapshot of movements at a point in time in a space and place and write about them. There can be value in that work, but often it amounts to taking a picture of movements. And our question was, well, who does that really benefit? And we recognize alongside of other folks who are doing fairly radical academically based work that that work often benefits the security state. It often takes pictures and gives diagnostic accounts of movements, how they organize, what they're up to, that aren't of value to people who are doing that work, of course, because they know what they're up to. But it does paint pictures of movements that can be of great utility to state interests. We didn't want to do that. And we also didn't want to disappear into movements, which is what some solidarity researchers do. There's great value to this, don't get me wrong. Lots of the history of good, ethical, solidaristic research conducted from within the academy, whether by feminist researchers or people of color researchers working with communities or participatory action research, is one where often researchers disappear into movements and basically say, how can I lend my skills to you? There's tremendous value there too. But for us, the question was, there don't seem to be right now in Halifax or in Nova Scotia movements into which we can disappear. So we couldn't do that. So our question became, how could we mobilize research as a tool? And research thought of not as something that the academy owns, but as something that many people are doing already. The critical process of rigorously inquiring into your world and figuring it out. Movements do this already. When a movement attempts to figure out how they can intervene in a system of power that is making life impossible for some of their members, they have to find out about that world, about that system, about its vulnerabilities. And that's a process of research. 
So what we wanted to do, and what we thought we could do, was to mobilize our space relatively outside of these movements, because at the time neither of us were organizing actively in Halifax's activists. We were certainly participating in different movement events, but we were outside of those circuits of organizing that we'd been involved in in the past. And we thought we could create a process that would allow people to come together without being subsumed underneath one tent or another of an existing movement in the city and have discussions around critical contemporary questions that would be expansive about big ideas, not simply about a specific moment in the current fight back against austerity or against securitization, whatever, and really bring to light both possibilities and limitations of what they were up to. And so what we did was create a process that aimed to do that. We started by inviting self-identified radicals in the city to come and talk to us. And we ended up interviewing about 30 self-identified radicals over the course of a year. Following from that interview stage, we then brought people together in essentially what amounted to focus groups in a non-academic space in the city. We conducted these what we call dialogue sessions based around three central themes that had emerged from our research. The first theme was, how do we organize to win the fight back against austerity? The second dialogue session we had was about the relationship between the struggle against capitalism and the struggle against other forms of oppression, and also the reproduction of oppression, which we heard a lot about in the context of our interviews from activists, within movements themselves, and how movements, and this really troubling tendency that really shouldn't surprise anyone, because of course we're products of the poison society we live in, to reproduce those systems of oppression that exist more broadly. And what can we do about that? And then the final dialogue session was about forms of struggle today, about this tension between organizers and activists who wanted more decentralized, more anarchistic forms of struggle, and organizers and activists who were arguing for more formal, more rigid, in some cases, more conventional forms of political struggle. In each of those dialogue sessions, we didn't lead the discussions. We invited people who we'd done interviews with who were particularly eloquent, who had particularly fully formed ideas around these concepts, to come forward and offer very short interventions to kickstart the dialogue, so usually five to ten minutes, no more than that. And then we facilitated discussion, and the discussion usually lasts about an hour, an hour and a half. And then following from that stage, we went into another stage, because we kept experiencing the sense that there were still limits to the process that we were doing. Interesting questions were being raised, interesting debates were being had, but that the project could still help people push further. And so then we initiated the stage that we're at now, and it's still ongoing. We're curating an ongoing speaker series where we invite mainly academics, activists, others from outside the city who have long-standing histories and have done really interesting and amazing things in the context of social justice struggle to come in and give talks basically about their work, their relationship to the radical imagination and the current moment. And so that's been the project. The process itself, I think, was a really rich one, and it got people talking in ways and in a space that generally movements weren't doing for themselves, especially across those boundaries of sectarianism and uh, feelings of betrayal in some cases, feelings of broken solidarity in others, because it was a space which wasn't clearly owned by any given movement in the city. So tell me more about outcomes. What was added to the community through this process? It's been ironic because we concluded this really intensive interview phase and focus group phase in the winter of 2010-2011. At that point, we were sort of like, okay, now we need to figure out how we're going to bring this back to the community, how we're going to move into the next step. And then a few weeks later, there were the uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia. In the fall, the Occupy movement, which in Halifax had its own manifestation, 
Not too long after that, we had the rise of Ionel No More. And then after that, in Atlantic Canada, we had this amazing resistance last summer against fracking led by the Mi'kmaq indigenous nation there. And when we looked around after getting caught up in some of that, we noticed a number of things. The first was that there were a whole bunch of new people we'd never seen before and we didn't interview. So we were like, oh, what does this research that we did have to say to these people who recognize what we would have been studying as something that happened in the past of social movements? So it was a bit of a weird moment because we had a set of recordings and interviews and focus groups that reflected an extremely grim time for movements. We're working on an audio documentary that'll feature the voices of some of the people we interviewed, and we've given it the provisional working title of The Darkest Moment Before the Dawn. Because listening back to these interviews, it's incredible how very negative and hopeless they were, even among people who would then go on and be participants in these future movements. And for that reason, it's very difficult for us to tell exactly what the outcomes were, because the situation on the ground changed. Even speaking to many of the people that we interviewed, their perspectives after those massive events were very different. And uh, we wouldn't say that it was our project that made those views different. It was clearly that the dawn broke. I think maybe the uh, outcomes we can judge to a certain extent by what we were told by the people we'd done interviews mm -hmm. with, which is that for most of them in all their many years of doing activism, no one had ever bothered to ask them some deep questions. No one had asked them what would it mean to win. No one had asked them to narrate how they became activists. Frankly... Activists don't do a great job of listening to each other and valuing and honoring one another, valuing and honoring our elders or valuing and honoring our youth either. So just having someone who didn't have an axe to grind, who was, you know, as researchers, we made it clear that we were not judging people, just giving people an opportunity. I think there was a certain therapeutic value to that that actually helped people get up the next day and go back to struggles, which most of them admitted were objectively hopeless. You know, anti-capitalist organizers, very few of them believed that capitalism is going to be overthrown in their lifetime, and even fewer believed that their particular actions would lead to that. Certainly no one believed that, you know, the Halifax Commune was around the corner. So there was a sense that there needs to be these institutions and frameworks within our movements to help people simply reproduce their own spirit amidst soul-crushing defeat. And so that was one measure of success. I think the other measure of success was that because we had interviewed these 30 activists who'd been involved for a long time, we were able to, as Alex said, identify these three things that were really causing tensions and unspoken friction within the community. And we said, let's talk about them. We're going to organize a non-judgmental, mediated forum. We're going to get people who can really articulate these ideas clearly. We're going to put them on a stage together and in a good-natured spirit without really political stakes, and in a non-partisan way, let's talk about it. And I think that was useful for people. People came to understand the contours of their own opinions and ideological dispositions and that of others. And we never, from the beginning of this project, ever wanted this to be about creating unity. We're not actually particularly interested in ideas of the United Left. We're interested in seeing the differences crystallized, allowing people to own them, and making those differences useful as points of organizing. So I think that that was maybe a measure of success too. Many people who weren't activists actually came out to many of our events, and through them, we were able to introduce them to people working on issues they cared about and they entered into movements. I mean, one of the other things about the Halifax context is that one of the things we noticed is that 
there are people who are passionately working on things, and some people have been passionately working on them for 30 years, but there aren't movements as such. There aren't these huge organizations that actually have power. What we had is a scattered group of people in a variety of overlapping networks. And the reality is, and why we wanted to study Halifax, which is kind of this marginal place, is that this is what social movements are doing. Sure, we can look to San Francisco, where there are incredibly resilient, powerful movements that have existed for a long time. We can look to large urban centers. We can look to Chiapas. We can look to uh, the Philippines. But the reality of social movements around the world is it's made up of scattered, alienated, isolated people who are just trying to keep going. <laughs> and so trying to develop mm -hmm. a project to lift that up, to acknowledge that and to enable that and to honor that, I think, was what we were going for. And so that's an ongoing process. We're learning as we go. In terms of the ongoing phase of the work, I understand you have an event coming up in the near future. Tell me a little bit about what that's going to involve, but also what that implies about what you're trying to achieve with the ongoing work. As Alex mentioned, the thing that we've been doing for the last little while since we finished the active research phase and focus group phases of the project is organizing public events. So often we know people are coming into town, very interesting speakers involved in movements, and we ask them to speak to stimulate the radical imagination from outside, because often the dialogues that are happening within Halifax get a little tired. But actually one of the things that we started thinking about in the last few months was that Halifax is actually quite an amazing city in some ways. We have some really phenomenal activists and organizers and intellectuals who are doing great work. And because of our marginal position in the world, their work is rarely acknowledged. And in fact, it's rarely acknowledged even within Halifax. So we've embarked upon a next phase of the project, which will involve highlighting the work being done in our city. Really giving people who've been working for a long time, or a short time, a platform to articulate themselves. Not a panel, not 15 minutes, but a good hour or more to sort of flesh out their ideas and debate them. We think this is an important thing, and it's not something movements do themselves very well in any city, but especially in Halifax. As part of this, we're building towards a conference which we're going to have in September of 2014, which is going to involve six local speakers and two speakers from away who are going to speak to their involvement in social movements, the lessons they've learned, and what they're thinking now. And the idea is to try and really bring these people together and have a good discussion about what are some of the issues and potentials facing movements. And then we were just talking now about where we want to take the project from here, and we're thinking we want to expand it out of Halifax, to more broadly to Nova Scotia. And we're interested in engaging with the conflicts that are currently happening around resource extraction and energy. We think our next project, if we can find the resources to do it, will be about trying to bring together different communities from around the province, Mi'kmaq community, African Nova Scotian community, Acadian community, settler communities, what have you, to really talk about how we can take back these ideas and terms. What do resources actually mean for people? What does democracy mean? What does energy mean? What does power mean? Beyond just the meanings that are given to us by the structures of power, we want to actually see if we can take the framework we've developed with the Radical Imagination Project and foment a moment of collective theorization and redefinition of the terms that are defining our lives. You have been listening to my interview with Alex Kaznabish and Max Haven about their recent scholarly and activist work related to the radical imagination in Halifax, Nova Scotia. To learn more about their work, as well as about their book, The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity, go to radicalimagination.org. That's radicalimagination.org. 
www.talkingradicalradio.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.